If you guys don't think that Matt works hard on Sunday morning, you don't see this pool of sweat that's all over here. I feel like I'm going to trip on something here, Matt. Um, He was working hard this morning. I'm so thankful um, for our time that we have each Sunday morning to join our hearts together in singing um, praises to him. And today, as we continue our study in John, we um, uh, ask you to invite, uh, invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. If you don't have um, a, a Bible, I know I'd love for you to take the one that's in front of you, and you just take that one home. We'd love for you to have that. We're in John chapter 6, and where we ended last week was uh, on verse 13, where Jesus had just performed this miracle of taking five loaves of bread and two fish and not only fed everyone, but there were 12 baskets of leftovers. So this was by far the largest miracle that Jesus had done up to this point. Most conservative estimates say that he fed about 20,000 people when you take into effect the women and children. And after the miracle had occurred, each disciple had his own basket, and when he left, the baskets were all filled um, with the leftovers there. In John chapter 6, let's continue on in our study, and we're going to begin in verse 14, and I want to see how does the crowd respond to this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 men. Begin in verse 14. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done... They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now let's pause there for a second. Because you see, the people, they were right to see Jesus as this long-awaited prophet that God had promised to send. That was correct. However, even as sometimes today as Christians, what we will do, uh, the people's own desire, it caused them to misunderstand Scripture up to this point. See, they had just experienced this undeniable miracle, this miracle in which their hungry stomachs had been filled, and now it's almost as as if they're envisioning this future in which they have free food for life. They never have to worry about another thing. All of their physical needs are now going to be met. And as a result, they missed the fact that this miracle, that it was actually what John calls a sign, there are seven signs in in the book of John, this was one of the signs that was pointing to the fact that Jesus was God's Messiah, that he was the long-awaited one. But sadly, the eyes of the crowd, they were blind And they could not see that, in fact, Jesus came to do more than just feed them one meal, but he came to provide them lasting spiritual nourishment. But instead, they missed it. Why did they miss it? Because their eyes and their hearts, they were focused inward. They were only looking at themselves. They were only looking at their own needs instead of what God was actually showing them. You see, it was their own comfort. It was their own security that caused the people to want to crown Jesus as king. Now, they were excited about crowning him as king, but what was their motivation? Their motivation was that this king has now come to meet our needs, and he's come to meet our needs at our own timing and our own expectations. Now, remember, before we uh, picked up this story last week, that Jesus was emotionally exhausted at this moment. Before this miracle had occurred, he and his disciples had just come back from an extended period of preaching. 
He had also um, just uh, had to go through the death of his cousin and one of his closest friends, John the Baptist. So the purpose of where they were going, you'll remember, was he and his disciples, they wanted to escape the crowd. They wanted to get away from the crowd and just relax. And now, after this miracle has occurred, the crowd has rushed upon him. They have tried to, to force him to be king. And so Jesus, in his human nature, he needed help. He needed to reconnect with his father. So what does he do? He goes up on a mountain alone. And on this mountain, his desire is to pour out his heart to his heavenly father, to experience the fellowship that he so longed from him. Because he knew that the only thing that could satisfy Jesus in this moment was to spend time with his father. And church, think about this. If that's true for Jesus, then is it not exponentially more true for you and for me today? The only way that we will find true peace, the only way that we will ever try and find true wisdom or that we will ever find true understanding is when we experience this genuine fellowship with the Father through prayer. When we don't spend regular, meaningful time in fellowship with God through prayer, what do I mean by that? I mean that we're reconnecting with him, that we're recalibrating our lives based on what he says is most important, not what the world, not what we feel, not what other people are saying. But when we don't spend that regular, meaningful time in prayer, friends, listen to me, we will get distracted by the temptations of Satan. And this is what Satan wants to do to you. He wants you to fall for the ways that he attempts to short-circuit God's path for our lives. Satan will always say, take the short path. Cut through, cut corners here, instead of us saying, this is what God has for me, so I'm going to follow him, even if it means some difficulty up ahead. It's through prayer that we're able to do as Paul commands in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, seek the things that are where? Above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Church, it's only when our minds are on things above, not on the distractions of this world, that we are able then to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's only when we're leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to resist the pull of the world to conform to the patterns of this world. But remember, Paul says that we aren't to conform to the patterns of this world, but we are to be what? Transformed by the renewal of our minds. So let's continue with our story. After this, Jesus, he sends his disciples away and a storm occurs in verses 16 through 18. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough. Why? Because a strong wind was blowing. So when Jesus goes on this mountaintop alone, he also sends his disciples away. We learn that from Matthew. Remember, this is this miracle This is told in all the Gospels. And in fact, when he sends them away in Matthew, it actually says this in Matthew 14, immediately he, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. The word that's used there is that he compelled them. They didn't want to go. But Jesus deliberately says, no, you must get in this boat and you must leave. My guess is, is that the crowd, because they had been with Jesus, because they loved Jesus, I'm, I'm going to say the crowd, I'm meaning the disciples at this moment, 
that maybe they got caught up in this excitement. Hey, look at this miracle. Maybe now's the moment. And maybe they were tempted, like you and I may have, might have been tempted too, to say, hey, let's, let's join in the chorus of the crowd and let's say, Jesus, why don't you tell them who you are? Why don't you crown yourself king right now? But Jesus knew this was not his time. This was not his moment yet. So as they sailed across the lake of Capernaum, the disciples, they found themselves caught in a storm. But friends, don't miss this. This is no accident that Jesus has commanded his disciples to sail into the storm. This did not catch Jesus by surprise. Jesus is not like, oh no, I sent them in the wrong direction and now a storm came up. Now what am I going to do? No, Jesus is fully in control and he's going to use this storm to intentionally strengthen their faith and their dependence on him. Again, we'll use the other three Gospels as secondary sources. What we know is that as they're setting sail, they're in this, the disciples are in this little boat. And the wind, it blows the boat so far offshore that they find themselves in the very middle of the sea or in the middle of the lake. And so during this storm, um, we see that, that there, there's a storm that comes and it says that the wind and the waves are battering up against the boat. That word there is literally, it was tormenting the boat. And the disciples, you can imagine that many of them are fishermen. They are straining with their oars. They're trying as hard as they can to move across this lake as fast as they can. But scripture says after between 8 and 12 hours, they'd only gone 3 or 4 miles. By the way, what is Jesus doing, doing during this time? What is Jesus doing when these disciples, they're fearing for their lives. They think this may be the end of their life. What in the world is Jesus doing in this moment? He is up on a mountain alone praying. Has he forgotten about his disciples? Does he care about them? What in the, why is he not answering right there? Let me remind you, why are the disciples in this storm? They're in this storm because they listen to the literal voice of Jesus say, go in this direction. But I, I thought, Blake, that if you obeyed Jesus, I thought if you did everything you were supposed to, if you literally, as the disciples did, they obeyed his literal voice, then surely you wouldn't have hardships. You wouldn't have trials. I thought only trials and difficulties and temptations, those things only come when you disobey the Lord, right? It's only got, when God wants to punish you that you're going to experience these difficulties. If you listen to some preachers, that's what they would tell you. But in moments like this, I think that what Jesus is teaching his disciples, and I think what he's teaching you and I today, is that when you decide to follow him, that you are going to be sailing your vessel into the winds of life. And guess what? You will have trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But what? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. So what do we do when we're following Jesus and he promises trouble? We obey him anyway. All throughout the Bible. Some of God's choicest servants, they experience extreme amounts of suffering, hardships, and persecution. Why? Because they disobeyed the Lord? No, because they obeyed the Lord. Think about Moses. Moses, he faced the rejection of his own people. Why? Because of the burning bush. He said, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Think about Daniel. Daniel. He goes into the lion's den. Why? Because he disobeyed the Lord? No, because he said, I'm going to obey the Lord even against the king's decrees. What about Paul? Paul, the greatest evangelist of all time. 
Why did he experience all those extreme amounts of persecution? You want to read about what he went through? Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Why? Because he left Tarsus and he agreed to follow Jesus and to become a missionary for him. Church, following Jesus does not mean that you will have a peaceful, easy life. You will have storms in life. But what it means is that through these storms, you will experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit flowing through your life like never before. I have to believe in the midst of this storm that at some point the disciples looked up when they're on this boat and said, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, did you forget about me? Why don't you come and rescue me? I am suffering. We may die here. Where are you, Jesus? In church, and if we're real honest, there are probably moments in our own life that we've had dark moments. We've had times of suffering. We've had times that we wouldn't wish on our worst neighbor. And in the midst of that suffering, we look up and say, God, have you forgotten about me? God, I've tried to honor you. Look at all that I've done. God, where are you? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? God, do you even see me? But friends, the Bible says that Jesus even sees when a sparrow falls to the ground. So there is no doubt that he sees you in the midst of your storm. In this moment, Jesus saw these disciples. Remember, most of them were fishermen. And as he sees the disciples, they're rowing helplessly. And what does Jesus do? He delayed coming to them. Think about that. He sees the disciples, they're rowing helplessly, they're fearing as if they are going to lose their life, and yet they're wondering where he was, and yet he chooses to allow the wind, to allow the storm, to allow the waves to continue to batter up against the boat so they're fearful for their lives. And then, finally, Jesus came to them. But let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus delay in coming to them? Doesn't this remind you a little bit of the story of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead? We're going to get to that story. It's in John chapter 11. If I continue on this pace by December 2039, we should be there. Um, we're going to get there, I promise. But in that story, we have Lazarus and Mary and Martha, brothers and one brother and two sisters, and Lazarus, they are very close to Jesus. In fact, he visits them on his last week of his life. And Mary and Martha, they, they send word to Jesus, Jesus, our brother Lazarus, your dear friend, your dear brother, he's sick and he's sick to the point of death. Please come. They had faith. Please come because we know that if you come that you can what? You can heal him. And what does Jesus do? He delayed coming to them for two whole days. And in choosing to delay in coming to Lazarus, his dear friend, Lazarus eventually dies. So Jesus, he comes to the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, and it says that Jesus wept. And after weeping, he calls Lazarus out, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. But why, again, did Jesus delay in coming to heal Lazarus? Why didn't he just do it immediately? 
I think it was to take Mary and Martha to the very end of their own strength so that they would have to fully rely on God. I think that's exactly what's happening here in this miracle that we're about to see. I think that God, Jesus, is allowing the disciples to get to the very end of their own strength so that they can see the only hope that they have is in Jesus. And friends, I can't stand here and pretend to tell you why sometimes God hears your prayers and he answers in accordance with your prayers. And yet sometimes you pray You fast, you read scripture, you talk with other friends, you go to Bible study, and God hears your prayers. We know that, but sometimes he delays in answering your prayers. And yet sometimes we pray, we fast, we go to other friends, and we we, we continue to pour our hearts out to God, and God answers us, but he answers us in a way that disappoints us. In fact, sometimes he answers us in a way that devastates us. I don't understand all that. I'm not smart enough to give you an answer, But I fully agree with Tim Keller who says this, there is a purpose to suffering. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. I wanna take a time out here for just a second. Typically, I like to save the application for the end of the text. I think it's important that we know what the text says. We read it in context, and then we say, okay, what can we learn about it? But right here is is a good spot for us just to pause and say, okay, according to this passage of Scripture, what is it that God is teaching me? And what I think we can see from this story in John chapter 6, along with one additional verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is that he gives us three firm promises that we can stand on when suffering when trials and temptation come your way. Let me read the verse to you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The first promise we can stand on is that trials and temptations are common to all people even Christians, even followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we cannot escape, we cannot avoid trials, but as a follower of Jesus, we do have the advantage of Christ's presence in the midst of those storms. God designed your trials, why? To give you opportunities to grow closer to him, to bring glory to him, and we're about to see how that's going to happen in just a minute in John chapter six. The second promise is that God is faithful. This verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Here's two things I know about God. He's fully sovereign. He's in control. He doesn't need our permission to do certain things. And he's good. Those are both equally true. He does not arbitrarily put trials in your path. But Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus lives to intercede for you, meaning that Jesus is praying for you, that he sees you, and that he never forsakes you even in the midst of those trials. The third promise is that in every trial, God provides a way out for believers. Why? So that our faith can endure it. 
He always provides a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says so that we can do what? So that we can stand up under it, so that we can endure the trial, so that we can escape the trial. Now, friends, sometimes we fail to recognize God's way out. We don't see it as God's way out because it's not the way that we were praying for. It's not the opportunity that we were looking for. But, friends, we know that God offers his real presence to us when we approach him through prayer. Back to our story of the disciples on the boat. According to Matthew, it was the fourth watch of the night, which means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. that Jesus comes to his disciples. Jesus, he came to his scared disciples during the darkest part of the night. He came to his disciples when they were exhausted, when they were miserable, when they were tired, and they were wondering if they were even going to survive. And friends, that may be where you are at this moment. You may be, as David said, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and you may be looking at God and things have never looked darker, they've never looked bleaker, and you may be saying, God, I don't know when you're going to come, but hold on, because he promises that he will come. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. So here Jesus, he walks as effortly across this water just as if he's walking across dry ground. Again, try to, try to picture this moment. This really happened. Sometimes we read the Bible and we think, oh, that's a great story. This really happened. What would your mind have thought if you're out on this boat in the midst of the storm thinking you're going to die and then you see Jesus just gliding across the water? How mind-boggling must that have been for these disciples? But let me ask you another question. Why did Jesus choose to walk on water? If he's a miracle maker, and he is, then he's a miracle worker, couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and put the disciples in the middle of the lake all the way to the side where they're going? Why did he walk on water? I'll tell you exactly why he walked on water. For the exact same reason that he fed the 5,000. For the exact same reason he did every other miracle. Jesus does not perform any miracle as a, as, as a magic trick to cause wonder and to say, people, oh, look what all the cool things that he can do. No, but by suspending the law of gravity, he's giving the disciples proof that not only is he the creator, but he's also the controller of the physical universe. By performing this miracle of walking on water, the disciples witnessed Jesus' power, and now they're beginning to understand just who he is. When they see Jesus walking on water, what's their response? How do they react? Look at the last part of verse 19. And they were what? Frightened. They've just seen something far beyond anything that the human imagination can even begin to explain. And now, I love this, in the midst of this raging storm in which they were terrified was going to take their life, in which some translations say the water was lapping into the boats and they're thinking the water is going to drown the boats. Now, instead of being terrified of the storm, now they're no longer fearing the storm, but now they fear the maker of the storm. They had just witnessed the power of God and now they were afraid. But what does Jesus say to them? Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Notice that before Jesus says, don't be afraid, what does he say? It is I. 
Jesus knew that once they knew it was him, the natural response would be they should no longer be afraid. And church, the same is true for us today. When we keep our focus on Christ, when we allow our minds to be on things that above and we don't get distracted by the things of this world, then we will be able to see life, as I talked about last week, through a lens of faith. And we will begin to see that we'll, that we'll recognize how and what he is doing and how he's working for his kingdom, for his glory. He's working beyond the, the canvas that we paint on from our 70, 80, 90 years of life. But he's painting for his glory. and We will begin to, begin to see what he's doing and then we will respond accurately and look at how the disciples respond in verse 21 then they were glad to take him into the boat well duh <laughs> you've, been, you've been scared for your life I mean John just put they were glad well of course they were no doubt they were excited about it these disciples just like every true disciple of Jesus they longed to be in the presence of their savior they didn't want to leave him in the first place no doubt they were disappointed when Jesus, he didn't jump into that boat with them, but when he sends them away. And now, whenever he comes to them, quite frankly, in the most unimaginable way possible, they are overjoyed. They gladly take Jesus and they welcome him back into the boat. But there's something that I, I, I can't quit here for just a second, because there's a part of this story that John doesn't mention that's in other gospels, and that's the story of Peter. And we know that Peter, a lot of times we like to pick on Peter. We pick on it because of the, the flaws that he has and his excitement. But friends, I'm sorry. I wish I was more like Peter in some instances. I wish I had his excitement. I wish I had the faith that Peter had. Because what does Peter do? Look at um, Matthew's version, Matthew chapter 14. This is what happens in the midst of this. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter, no, no one else. Peter got out of that boat. And he walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? So Peter, he began walking on water because of what? Because of, of anything he had? No, because of his faith in Jesus. And he's walking on this water as long as his eyes are on who? Jesus. But whenever his eyes are off of Jesus and his eyes go onto the storms, he begins to sink. But I love this about Peter because Peter knew Jesus. He knew who to call out to when he was sinking. And it says he called out to Jesus. And the word there is Jesus immediately reached his hand out and took him and saved his life. See, in this passage, there's not just one miracle here. It's not just the miracle of, of Jesus walking on water that we see in John chapter 6. There's four miracles. The first miracle is Jesus walking on water. The second miracle is Peter walking on water that we just read about in Matthew 14. The third miracle that happens is the storm instantly stopped. You see that in Matthew. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, stopped. And the fourth miracle is the boat instantly arrived on the shore. The last part of verse 21 says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So it goes from the middle of the lake instantly to where they're supposed to be. And the disciples, they were understandably astonished. Mark 4, 41, and they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
And watch how they responded. Our last verse this morning. And those in the boat worshipped him. And what do they say? Truly, you are the Son of God. Church family, the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ is to fall before him in worship. Just as the wise men did in Matthew chapter 2. Just as the woman whose daughter was freed from from being healed of the demon possession in Matthew chapter 15. Just as the blind man who Jesus healed in John 9 falls down and worships him. Just as the women who came to the tomb in his resurrection, they fall down and worship in Matthew 28. Just as Thomas does in John chapter 20 when he experiences Jesus. Just as the rest of the 11 disciples do in Matthew chapter 28. Church, it's not enough to simply be amazed by Jesus' miracles. He's not just a magician. He didn't do these miracles so we'd be amazed. No, the disciples' response, it is an example for you and for me and for every follower of Jesus that we are to respond by worshiping him and proclaiming him as the Son of God. So how about you? How has the understanding of who Jesus Christ, what has that done in your life? Has it radically transformed your life? Has it transformed every single area of your life? Or are you simply like those who were amused by the miracle of Jesus providing them fish and bread and they simply wanted to know, what else can you do for me, Jesus? The crowds, they followed Jesus simply, why? Because of what he could do for them. But the disciples... They fall down and they worshiped and they proclaimed him as the son of God. So my question for you is this. Where are you? Are you part of the crowd? Are you one of the disciples? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your promise that even in the midst of the storm, We're never beyond your reach. We're never beyond your grasp. That you see us, that you love us, and that you are working all things together for good. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room right now. Lord, if we had time, we could all talk about the trials that we're going through. For some that we've prayed and prayed and prayed and we're not sure how or why you're responding this way, Lord, but what we do is we continue to trust you. Lord, I ask that you would meet each and every need that's in this room. Not with the answer that we necessarily want, but you would meet that need with yourself. That we would find that you are more than enough. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here in this room today that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that today that they would confess their sin. They would reach out and ask for you to come forgive their sins, to be their Lord and Savior, and they will find you willing, waiting, and longing to welcome them into your family. Lord, forgive us for the times that we think that we can earn your love, that we can earn or that we can deserve the good things that you give us. We simply want to be obedient to you. So would you work in our lives in ways that only you can and we promise that we'll faithfully follow you no matter where you lead you.
because we desire to be with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.